0: Our scripture reading today is from Micah 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among your clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time. When she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for the, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Amen.
1: Amen. Uh, one quick announcement here before we get going. Just want to let you know that uh, we've got a special guest uh, speaker minister next week, Pastor Jim LaFoon. Many of you may know Jim. Yeah, he's typically here annually. Uh, we'll be here next Sunday. And Jim is part of the uh, international leadership team for Every Nation Churches and Ministries, of which we are a part. And Jim travels the globe and ministers. He's a, a tremendous communicator, great Bible teacher. You're definitely going to enjoy his ministry. He also has a strong prophetic gift. And uh, Jim will be here with us for all three services on Sunday morning only so Sunday morning next week we'll be hearing from Jim and look forward to having you with us in him as well as you can see we're starting a brand new series uh, in the month of December called searching for Christmas and the reason we're calling this uh, this is because I think it's I think it's fairly obvious that at Christmas time in December that people in our culture really are searching for something now it can be as simple as searching for that perfect gift, right, uh, for that special someone and so you, you search and you, you, you go online and you go to the, to the mall to search for a gift or maybe it's something as simple as searching for that perfect Christmas tree, you know, whether it's uh, artificial, pre-lit or real live and those are all appropriate choices for you. You're choosing the right one. It could be as simple as a gift, simple as a tree, or maybe it's something a little deeper, like you're searching for a little bit of uh, peace and joy and maybe a little moment of rest from the crazy relatives right? that come to stay again this year at Christmas time. But whatever it is that you're searching for at Christmas, what the, the Bible has to say is that underneath all the presents and all the lights and all the parties and all the shopping, what the human heart is really searching for is something so big the human mind and heart can barely contain it. It says that underneath all these things we go around looking for in our culture, all that we search for at Christmas, that underneath all those things, what we're really searching for is something again so big that it can't fit in a box, it can't fit under your tree and certainly can't fit in your driveway with something with a bow on it at Christmas. What are we we searching for at Christmas? Well, I think out of all the people who have something to say about this, the, the minor prophets, they're called the minor prophets, not because they aren't important, but just because they wrote less than the major prophets. But the minor prophets had a lot to say about this, and one of them, a man by the name of Micah, wrote this passage, as you can see, nearly 800 years before Jesus was born, and he said this. He said, underneath all that we're really searching for at Christmas... We're really searching for a king. We're searching for a king to come love us, a king to come save us, a king even to come rule us, and that may sound surprising. Uh, The thought of searching for a king at Christmas, that may sound offensive to you. You may disagree with that, but I hope to show you by the end of our time here today that why I think that claim is true, why it matters, and how you can apply it to your life. So let's look at uh, what Micah says is our real search at Christmas, a search for a king. And we're going to see three things from his passage today. Number one, we're going to see there is a king. But number two, we're going to see we hate the king. And finally, I hope to show you why we need the king. Number one, let's begin and just see why Micah is saying there is a king. And of course, again, Micah was one of these minor prophets, wrote this about 800 years before Jesus of Nazareth was born. And after Jesus was born, the the gospel writer Matthew looked back and he, he picked up this passage, Micah 5. And he said, man, this whole thing Micah was talking about has come true in the person of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is that ruler, that king. And of course, when Matthew uh, saw that, other people saw it as well, and when Herod the great, you know, Herod in your Christmas nativity story, when Herod heard this, when he heard there's a king and when he heard this passage from Micah, it made Herod really nervous. Why? Well, of course, when you're a king and you want to stay in power, if you hear there's another king coming, you do what you have to do to consolidate Retain your power. And so, of course, this made Herod so nervous, so angry, that he went and executed all the babies born in Bethlehem under the age of two. It was terrible. This passage set Herod on edge and him into action. Why was this? What was in this that made Herod so angry? So nervous, feel so threatened. Let's look at it here. Verse two Micah writes, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So here Micah. 800 years before the birth of Jesus, says there's a future king coming. A future king is going to come into the world. But notice something amazing here, something I think is category-shattering and something I think is one of the strongest lines of proof that show you that what these prophets saw was beyond even their imagination. Micah doesn't just say there's a king who is coming. Micah says the future king is also an ancient king. The king who is coming, who will come, is a king, Micah says, who has been, his origins are from of old, he's existed, Micah says, from antiquity. He is, therefore, the once and future king. There's a king who once ruled, is saying, and when that king comes again, oh, he's going to put everything right. Now, I think this is amazing, but maybe this strikes you as something to be cynical about or skeptical about, or you hear this and you think, oh, oh. That sounds just like all those old legends uh, and fairy tales, all the stuff from songs or myth cycles from cultures all over the world. And yeah, if you're thinking that, on one hand, it does sound just like those things. I mean, think about, for example, some of the ones in our own culture, some of the legends and myth cycles. There's been a number of them, right? Uh, In literature, uh, in songs, in, in movies. Think about, for example, the old Robin Hood legend. There's the legend of Robin Hood right. There's good King Richard who, who went away, and in his absence, the land falls under the power of the evil usurper, Prince John. But when King Richard returns, what? He's going to make all things right. And this one is chums, shows up all the time. It keeps coming back around. I mean, Robin Hood's been played by everybody from a fox to a crow to an 80s hair model. There's a... a Kevin Costner, I believe. it. And what about this one? What about, what about Tolkien's myth cycle? Remember the name of his last book? What was it called? Return of the King. Well, why would the old king need to return? Why? Well, because there's an evil power. There's a shadow that's come over the land, and only the return of the king can make all things right. Now, how about, again, moving on, how about the original Star Wars trilogy? What was the name of that last movie? Return of Of the Jedi. Well, why would the Jedi need to return? Well, because there's an evil emperor, right, whose power and sorcery has fallen over the galaxy, and only a brave knight who returns can defeat the power, the evil, the shadow. And of course, arguably, the greatest of them all was the legend of King Arthur. King Arthur was such a great king that when he died, here's what was written on his tombstone it said, Here lies Arthur, Rex Quandum. Rex K. Futuris, Arthur, the once and future king. This is saying he was such a great king that surely, surely someone like Arthur will return and make the land right and make all things new I mean do you have any idea how many of these stories there are how often we turn this idea into a book or to a movie uh, despite all of the you know the special effects that's just about what all the you know DC Marvel superhero movies are about as well that's what the new coming out in February the new Black Panther movie is going to be about there you go a story of Gerald Bowie's life I imagine I'm just kidding all right <laughs> the king it's for you brother the king. What's he on? A throne, right? He's returning to his land. He's been away. There's evil that's arisen. His job, his task is to put those things down and to make the land new. It's incredible how often this comes into our culture. But what's also incredible at the same time is how consistently in our modern, secular, skeptical, cynical age, how often literary and movie critics have begun to shun and disparage these kind of movies. I mean, Tolkien got such pushback and blowback to his stories in his day, he had to write essay after essay, even defending the idea of a happy ending. And even today, movie critic, after movie critic, they lay into comic book movies as irrelevant, lay into fantasy stories as meaningless, as pointless, or certainly not as important as gritty, dark, hard-hitting films, right? Because literary movie critics, they love the bleak, depressing morally ambiguous stories right and then they endorse those and by the way I don't I know this because I don't actually go to movies anymore I have like a hundred kids and so really what it feels like and so I just go to baseball games and ballet recitals apparently now uh, but so I don't go to movies actually I just read the reviews I read the critics and you can see that they they hate these kind of movies they're irked that the average person loves movies with happy endings about brave knights or heroes or legends who go into battle they emerge triumphantly uh, so let's ask why is it we love these stories over and over and over again why do we love stories of kings of kings when in reality kings have been a terrible idea in the world Right, the, Look at history. Kings have been terrible. They, have The person who, who accrues a ton of power, who's like the absolute sovereign monarch, they usually do terrible things. And it's been tyranny and oppression and slavery and almost every monarchy in the world has been toppled. And in its place put some kind of democracy or some close version of it. So why are we still obsessed with kings? What's our obsession with royalty? Even today. And of course, if you can make it past all the the news stories and cycle this week about all those people getting fired for sexual misconduct in the worst workplace, you can see that people are still going nuts for royalty, right? Because who got engaged this week? Look, well, Prince Harry, right in England, it got engaged to American actress Meghan Markle. And by the way, that shows anything is possible for two reasons. This is a total aside. Number one, it shows you anything is possible because the British royal family is finally getting some color in it. Now. Yeah. <laughs> Anna shows you nothing is impossible because Meghan Markle, because, excuse me, before she was engaged to a real prince, used to be a caseholder girl on the TV game show Deal or No Deal. Inspiring one lady to write and tweet this. This is hilarious, actually. Uh, She wrote this. says, if Meghan Markle can go from being a Deal or No Deal briefcase girl to an actual princess, I can find the willpower not to wear sweats all seven days this week. Yeah that's funny. So thank you. who's a Caitlin Allen. We appreciate you. We're still obsessed with royalty. Why is this? Let's go a little deeper. Why is there in our nation every four years, still a large percentage of the population who give themselves over to believing that the candidate that they pick will save our country? Republicans had to learn the hard way. Bush couldn't save us. Democrats have had to learn the hard way. Obama couldn't save us. But still we look for a savior, a kind of king to come and save us all to make the land right, to unite us all. Why are we constantly trying to crown kings in our culture? C.S. Lewis put it like this. He wrote, The actual record of kings is abysmal, full of tyranny, of course, and yet... Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars. Instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. What's he saying? He's saying that even though we can see that earthly kings are a mess, we still keep trying to put something in its place because we are hardwired to do it. The Bible would agree. Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the the, the Bible's story about humanity. It shows us a time where people lived under the rule of God the King and what it shows us was breathtaking. There was no violence, no dominance of men over women. Women over men. Nature was in harmony. There was both sexual freedom and fidelity, but to this rule of freedom... Humanity said no. We said we'd rather have it our own way and we rebelled against God the king and what did the king do? Well, before we were banished from paradise, what was, if you remember, what was the last thing the king spoke into his people? You'll notice after this in the Old Testament, God never speaks to his people as a whole except through prophets and judges. He'll come to an individual, Elijah or Moses, but to the people, to humanity, He never comes to them directly, only through a mediator. So what did this king promise? What was the last thing God spoke directly into us as people? He promised, hear me, he promised a return promised a return he said one day there's going to be a great king a true king that's going to return there's going to be a great battle and this king he calls him a seed will crush the great serpent the great dragon of course christians have understood this to be satan and god says to the serpent in genesis three fifteen. look at this he says i will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and hers the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel God's saying there's going to be a future king who returns, who comes, who defeats all evil and rules with justice and peace. And of what the Bible says is true, and it is, that this is the last thing, in a sense, that God spoke into us directly, that it makes perfect and absolute sense. This would pass into our imagination, into what Joseph Campbell calls our collective unconscious. This would pass into our lore, and as humanity spread across the globe, it would find its way, make its way into songs and legends and lore and stories and myth cycles across humanity for all of history and see what we're doing when we do this when we put up kings when we write stories about the return of kings is we're following a memory trace we're following the scent of our hearts back to what it longs for most a true and great king and Matthew the gospel writer said Micah's words have come true in Jesus of Nazareth what you thought was a legend has become fact and the gospel writer John Jesus his own friend and disciple said we've seen the king he's come we've touched it we've seen it we've spoken to it it's spoken to us we've touched it with our hands the legend has become real in other words, Micah, Matthew, John, they're all telling you that Jesus isn't just another legend, like all other legends pointing to an underlying reality. No, that Jesus is the underlying reality that all legends point to. Micah's telling us what we already know for honest that there is a king. There's a once and future king. His origins are from of old, but he will return and shepherd his people in strength and free them from the tyranny of lesser gods and idols. So number one, there is a king, Micah shows us. But number two, and this is a little harder to take, so let's take it down again another level. This is hard to take, but number two, Micah also shows us that we actually hate the king. Micah acknowledges this. This is the end of his prophecy. God speaking to the people through Micah, through the prophet. God says through Micah to the people. He says, I will destroy your idols, your sacred stones from among you. You no longer bow down to those things. I'll uproot from you. Your Asherah poles. When I demolish your cities, I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. And Merry Christmas to you all. All right. God says to the people, my judgment... My justice will come, not just to Israel, he says, but to the whole world, to all the nations. Why? He says, because they have not obeyed me. And this verb here, "for not obey, in the, in the Hebrew really is uh, 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 one that indicates that a choice has been made. In other words, God's saying, the nations, the people, they've heard my word, heard of who I am, but they have refused, they have chosen to not Obey me. Let me put this to you another way. Show another way this theme comes up. Psalm 2, written a little earlier in the Bible. This psalm about the coming king. This is a messianic psalm. Same idea. Second verse, same as the first. Uh, Psalm 2 says this. It writes about the king. This says, The kings of the earth, look at this, rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah king. And the rulers of the earth say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Let's ask, why then do people reject the king? What are they trying to get rid of? Well, this translation says shackles, but a better word here really is the word yoke. There's a yoke. There's a yoke This is saying that the true king has put on people and people hate the yoke. These people here, these rulers, they're not upset because they're prisoners. They're upset because they recognize they have an owner. They have an owner. There's someone who's demanding they follow and obey the king and that's what the Bible says people we want nothing to do with. And this is why the Bible says that the state of the human heart, natural state, isn't skepticism or atheism. But the natural state of your heart is enmity or hatred against God. You come prepackaged, to hate the king. You say hatred, oh my gosh, isn't that like extreme? I mean, hatred, I mean, come on now. Don't most people believe in God. Don't most Americans like believe in God. Well, one person agreed, Michael Kinsley, a liberal skeptical writer uh, in the New Republic. He wrote an article uh, along that line of thinking. And he said this he said, listen, you know, people today, they say that America is becoming increasingly secular and skeptical. And he said, sure, there are pockets of that like New York or LA where people. People, you know they don't like God like as much as they used to but overall he asked the question still today is it easier in America to get up and say I don't believe in God or is it easier to get up and say yeah I do believe in God and Kinsley argued it's easier to get up and say that I believe in God you'll get less blowback so he said sure this is proof that people aren't hostile or anti-God but Kinsley's wrong he's wrong And this is where the Bible gets really challenging, because the Bible doesn't say that people are hostile, doesn't say Americans are hostile to the idea of a God, hostile to the idea of heaven or an afterlife. No, the Bible says that you and I are actually hostile towards the person of God himself. See, people aren't against the idea of a God who just lets them do whatever they want to, right? We're not against the idea of what uh, Ben Stiller and Meet the Parents says, oh God, we thank you, you're a good and accommodating God. Oh, yeah. No, people are against the biblical God, the God who thunders from the top of Mount Sinai, who gives not the 10 suggestions, but the 10 commandments who says, I will by no means clear the guilty. We hate the idea of Jesus, the king who comes and says, unless your love for me makes the love you have for your family look like hatred, unless you hate your own father and mother and even your own life, unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. We hate that kind of king. We want a king, but we hate the king. Why? Because we hate the yoke. The yoke. You say, well, what about the people who have, like, abandoned their faith or turned their back on God because, you know, stuff didn't go their way or maybe they thought God promised them something but life didn't go the way they wanted? Well, let me just tell you, they weren't really after God, the king in that sense. They were only after, like, his stuff, like his power, hmm? his help, uh, maybe a kind of happiness he brings. They just kind of married God for his money. And when the trust fund didn't come down to them like they wanted, they cut bait, abandoned ship. You say, well, Morgan, this is kind of tough. I don't really believe in any of that. I just believe in a God of love. I rest my case. We hate the king, the one who says, you are my possession. I have a right to your life and your stuff. You say, oh, okay, so people who who reject God are just skeptical. No, 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 not at all. Let me tell you, you and I, church people, we use church to disguise our hatred. We use Bible verses, Bible knowledge, church service, church attendance, financial giving to disguise our hatred. And you can see this in the book of Romans. Paul writes this. Paul, who's converted, who says, I know I love the king. I've given my life to serve the king. But when I'm honest and I go there on the inside... I recognize I resist the king. I hate the king. There's a kind of residual anger my heart holds against the king. Let me ask you, why do you think for Christians, it's so hard to pray sometimes, right? So hard to fast, so hard to give, right? So hard to spend time in God's word. And why is it when your plans don't work out sometimes, maybe you didn't get the recognition or the thing that you wanted or whatever that thing is, you're angry about it. What's that anger? It could be it's anger at the king because the king didn't do what she wanted him to do. Listen, no one's neutral about a king, right? I mean, Herod wasn't. Herod heard what we hear. Herod heard, oh, king, you're the king. But there's another king coming, and his rule is going to end your tyranny and displace your rule. And like Herod... We react, especially in our modern age. What do we say? Oh, Jesus, come to be king. Are you kidding me? No one can tell me what to do. Well, who's the person no one tells anything what to do? The king, right? We see ourselves as king. And that's what's at the bottom, hear me, of your resistance to Jesus. It's not history. History's got nothing to do with your resistance to Jesus. We know he really lived. We know he existed. We know the gospel records are eyewitness accounts. There's massive and convincing amounts of evidence for his resurrection. It's not history that keeps you away. It's not really science that keeps you away. Science has got nothing to do with whether or not Jesus really existed. That's not what science is for. What keeps you away from Jesus isn't history or science. It's a way. What keeps you away is the fact that Jesus says, I've come to be your king. And we'll either crown him or we'll try to kill him like Herod did. There is a king, number one, but we hate the king, number two. So what can we do? What do we do? What should we do? I want to propose to you today what we need to do. So number three, we need to acknowledge that we need the king, number three. But not, hear me, not just any kind of king. We need this king. What it says in verse 2. Micah says, but you, Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem wasn't even a tribe. It was like a group of families. Out of you will come for me. One who will be ruler. Where does this king come from? Does he come from Rome? Does he come from Jerusalem, maybe? How about Babylon? know he comes from where? Bethlehem what this one detail shows us is that this king isn't going to be the kind of a king that the world expects. I mean, come on. What college did Jesus go to? University of hard knocks, right? School colors, black and blue. No, I'm just kidding. What degrees did the son of God earn? Not only was he born in a little tiny Bethlehem, he grew up in a remote place called Nazareth, you may know, and I don't know if you knew this, but there, there's a town here in Texas, only 56 miles from us here today in Austin, a town called Oatmeal, Texas. It's true. And here's a big picture. There's the town. You're looking at it. Population 20. Population 20. That's the last census. Population 20. Now, the last three presidents in our nation have been from new york honolulu slash chicago and then houston all have graduated from ivy league schools now imagine with this in mind if i told you that our next great scientist leader right president was going to be someone who grew up and was educated learned the world from oatmeal texas <laughs> You think about probably what some people thought about Jesus when they heard he was from Nazareth, Nazareth, oatmeal, I mean what kind of good person can come from there? See why because the world is always looked down on, always despised people from the wrong kinds of places, from the wrong side of the tracks, but the Bible shows us not only does God thankfully not operate like that, he habitually he intentionally operates the exact opposite of uh, that look at the whole Bible, for example who Does God, this God, the biblical God, bring his message through? Hmm? Does he bring it through the powerful Egyptians, Roman Empire, the Syrian Empire? No. It's through a nation so small, a place so geographically ill-suited. It served for centuries as basically a road other empires went through on the way to conquering other empires because Israel wasn't worth their time. It wasn't Egypt, it was Israel, it wasn't the strong Esau, right? If you know your Bible that God used, it was the weak, the cowardly Jacob. It wasn't the beautiful runway model Miss Universe Rachel. It was the homely last place looking Leah over and over again. He uses women who couldn't have children. They were the outcasts, the 'er ne'er-do-wells of their culture. People like Rebecca, Hannah, Samson's mother, John the Baptist's mother. Then finally Mary, an unwed teenager, I mean, what kind of a God uses people like this? So because we think, we think if God were serious, man, he would use that powerful person. Man, he'd save that celebrity if only Michael Jordan would get saved. Right? Only Tiger Woods or that Oscar winner, the NFL MVP or that famous talk show host. But Listen, you know this, that mo- more often than not, the frequently, the more successful a person becomes, the prouder their heart gets. And the message of the Bible that the king is coming through weakness is a message proud people reject. God really need to save the celebrity to prove himself to you? Hmm? I mean, does he need, really need like a 4th of July fireworks deal, 21-gun salute, overhead jets, you know, blue angel formation just to prove something? Does he ever really come that way? No, he doesn't. What does he, has he proven he's coming through? Well, he's proved he's a God like that because he's already come through a family in poverty in Bethlehem. Why is this oh, Does God, does he, you know, does he just kind of like the underdog? Have like a soft spot, right? For the kid, last place. No, I think this is showing us something more. I think this is showing us something, hear me, about the very nature of the kind of salvation this king brings. Because every other faith system, hear me, including liberal, secular American culture, has at its core... A group of people, it says, are the deserving ones, the right ones, the one in line with what we think is good and right and just, and therefore those are the ones who are held up as the heroes and the ones who can't make it or don't cut it are excluded. Even secular culture does this with its talk of no rules. Well, one, for example, one prominent celebrity this week I read, famous actress, in response to yet another famous TV talk show host getting fired for his sexual conduct in the workplace, she tweeted... No mercy for this person. Mercy is for the deserving. God, mercy is for the deserving. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Right? If you deserved it, it would be what you earned. Now, I'm not defending any abuse of power, no taking advantage of someone in that kind of position at all. But what I am pointing out to you is I hope how deep the instinct of the human heart runs when it comes to identifying the good people and the bad people who deserves mercy, who deserves goodness, who's in and who's out on the basis of some kind of merit. You say, "Well, Morgan, didn't Micah just say? Did Micah just say that whoever disobeyed was out? That God was going to judge them? Yes, He did, and He will." He said, "Well, Morgan, I thought this was supposed to be different than anything else. How is what Micah says here different? Huh? Well, what Micah says is different because of this. What Micah says is different." because it's different because when you pick up Micah, you also pick up all the Old Testament. We don't look at scripture in isolation. We don't look at one verse alone. We pick up the whole Old Testament which shows us front to back that no one ever fully obeys God. No one ever fully follows him which means no one ever truly deserves mercy and you see this all along throughout the whole Bible and then all along, God is showing you that no one ever fully obeys his law and that's why he delights to save by sheer grace alone And that's why all those stories in the Old Testament are not about great moral heroes with great virtues. I mean, it's kind of like, don't watch that, kids. Don't turn that program on. Turn the channel, right? When Noah and Tamar and all those folks show up. Have you noticed these stories are all about moral losers? (laughs) Despicable me's. (laughs) Weak people. And because, hear me, God's people are the losers and the weak and the despicable, that's how. That's why his salvation can come through weakness, through all the Leahs, through all the Jacobs and the Josephs, through all the younger brothers and the barren women. And finally, 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 through a little boy born in a manger in Bethlehem. And Micah, oh, he goes on and he shows you just how weak this king is going to become. Look at this. He says, this once in future king... Will stand and shepherd his flock. What what kind of a king is this? A king who shepherds is like a like a shepherd king? Oh yes, a shepherd king. And what do good shepherds do? Good shepherds lay down their lives for their sheep. And didn't Jesus say this? Near the end of his life he said, I am the good shepherd. He says, I'm fulfilling Micah's words. I'm fulfilling Micah what he saw about me. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I will lay down my life for you, my sheep. And Jesus did. And at the end of his life, when he could have had anything he wanted because he truly, he was the only one who truly deserved God's mercy. This king ascended, not a throne, but he climbed up a cross and got the judgment we all deserve for our hatred of the king, our refusal to obey the king and he did this hear me not just as a good example although he is that not just as a hero although he is a hero not just as a teacher although he was a flawless impeccable teacher but he went and he did this hear me as your substitute in your place receiving the judgment we deserve what was he doing doing this showing you that no matter how great you are you can't save yourself in a king. And no matter how broken you are, on the other hand, he can rescue you. He can change you. He's the king. He's got the power to make you into something you could never have been before. He's got the power to bring you from the back to the front, into his court, into his palace, by his side. And listen, do you know why, even though when you watch those movies, even though you know those kind of endings are coming about rescue and deliverance, that's why you choke up when you watch those fairy tales, my, my, my family watched uh, the new version of Pete's Dragon recently. All it's all about a little boy who loves a kind of a a kind of a king kind of person, a dragon who appears fierce on the outside, but he's all loving and protective underneath him. The boy and his dragon, his protector are separated because of the evil townspeople who don't understand the loving, fierce dragon. And even though they're separated, the boy goes on a quest to find his protector. Everyone gets reunited in the end, and I know it's coming. I still get choked up. Why? Because I want a love that will last. I want a family that will receive me for forever. And it's why I get choked up, and probably you did too, when you watch the new version of Cinderella, all about the outcast girl who's rescued by a prince. He sees her true beauty, and he breaks the power of the evil that's keeping her destitute. They live happily ever after. You say, well, that's sexist, right? No woman needs a man to save her. And listen... I understand, I get the critique, but that's not what the story's all about. Because, by the way, isn't Beauty and the Beast just the same story in reverse? It's all about the woman saving the hairy man, right? Why? Because she sees who he is underneath and the love that she gives him breaks the spell, breaks the power of evil. That story is aimed at touching your heart, speaking to what we all want. For the power of evil in the world, in our lives to be broken by someone so pure someone so loving, someone so kind, so strong, who would give anything, even at infinite cost to bring us home. That's what we're searching for. That's what we really want. For that kind of a king. And Micah has said for 800 years, oh, that's what Christmas is really all about. Not just a legend. It's about a king come to win your heart, breaking the spell of our anger toward him because he's proven to us. He loves us. He's for us. We can trust him to break that kind of spell, right? That keeps us living like little Herods who in the end really rule nothing. And who will, ultimately in history, be remembered, ultimately, for one decision that votes for or against the king, the true king. Listen, we don't just need a king, though. We need this kind of a king, church. This king from Bethlehem. He comes in weakness to show you his salvation comes through weakness. And that's what you need today. And if you've got some kind of a need for some kind of a salvation, it's showing you that's how you get it. It's how you access it through the weakness, through the bowing of the knee, the bowing of the heart, the bending of the mind. Isn't that what all the hymns say? A little town of Bethlehem, you know this. It says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear him coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. His salvation comes silently, slipping into a crack in history, maybe to a crack in your life today if you'll receive him the same way he came, in weakness.